0: You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Thank you all for coming. So uh, today we are, we are finishing up uh, our sermon series, and that sermon series is called Good News. And uh, so obviously it's leading up till Christmas, even though... Christmas was yesterday. So Merry Christmas, by the way. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so if you haven't been here, uh, I just kind of want to recap uh, what the other, uh, the other sermons were that kind of led up to the birth of Christ. And, uh, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be looking at Luke 2 and uh, the actual birth, uh, birth of Christ and the coming of our Messiah. So we, uh, we started the sermon series with, uh, with Ovi and, uh, and he started the good news sermon with some not-so-good news, right? Um, and, uh, and so we, we kind of explored uh, this, this concept that, uh, that all humans are broken. Uh, and we're broken in some pretty helpless ways, right? Uh, there, there's just no chance that we can do anything in, in, in our brokenness, that we can save ourselves, right? Right? And it's a it's a pretty hopeless situation, and uh, and so even within ourselves, uh, we can't even turn to creation to save us. We have to we have to look for something external to nature, something super nature or supernatural needs to step into our nature and uh, and kind of work our redemption, right? And so this this is the start of the gospel. Uh, this is uh, this is where every gospel has to begin. We have to first understand our need for saving if we are to hope to look for a savior. Right, and so that's that's where the sermon series started, and and so we looked at this this concept of all humans sin, all humans fall short, Uh, all humans have this sin nature or nature of sinfulness. It's not something that's just kind of like added on top to us, but it's kind of something that permeates throughout everything that we do and who we are. Right, it's 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 a pretty helpless situation, uh, but that obviously points us to the need for a savior. And then last week, uh, Flo was talking to us about uh, repentance and how repentance is an appropriate response to not only knowing who we are, sinful people, but recognizing that we're sinful people and we worship a holy God, knowing who we are and knowing who God is, an appropriate response is repentance. Repentance is, is, is more than just uh, uh, confession or just admitting that we're wrong, though that's a component to it, uh, but repentance is this, is this turning away from this old life and walking into something new. And, uh, and so this repentance is, is a necessary and it's an appropriate reaction to understanding who we are and who God is, uh, but more importantly, uh, we even look at John the Baptist who's, who's preaching to Jerusalem, he's preaching to the Jews, uh, and he's calling them to repent. Uh, and, uh, and so he's actually calling them out to be baptized, which is this unique situation where that's, that's what non-Jews did to become Jewish so that they could then commune with God, right? And so he's asking Jews to be baptized so that they could participate in the covenant, right? And it, it's, this, it's this weird dynamic, but uh, essentially what he's doing is he's, he's telling them, you have, you have left the covenant, right? Uh, almost as if they've repented from the covenant, and they've walked away from it, and now he's calling them to turn back to the covenant, right? But even John the Baptist, as he's preaching repentance, he himself, when he recognizes who he is, he sees the Messiah. What's his response? Is repentance. Even John the Baptist felt the need to repent when he saw the Messiah. And so, uh, and that leads us to uh, what we're going to talk about today, and that's that's the birth of Christ. That's the coming of the Messiah. God dwells with us, Emmanuel right? And so all of this is leading up to this moment. And all of the Old Testament is leading up to this moment. Every, every book or every page of the Old Testament is waiting for when is the Messiah coming? When is God going to fix all of this? When is God going to fix me? When is he going to right all of this wrong? And, and, and the, old, the entire Old Testament is just waiting and waiting and waiting. And then here in Luke, we find it. He comes. And that's what we celebrate during Christmas, is this, is this is Emmanuel, this is Christ, this is the Messiah, this is, uh, this is where everything kind of comes together. And so um, we, we, we do talk about God dwelling among us, and there's something, there's something built inside of all of us, inside of humanity, that, that, that really desperately wants to commune with God, right? And we try to fill that hole with, uh, with a lot of other things in our life. Um, but there's something just built within humanity, and we see this in the garden. We're built to walk with God, commune with God, wake up to God, right? And so we're, we're built for this. Uh, but in, in, in another sense, the idea of God dwelling among us is, it's, it's terrifying, right? Like, think about it from the Jewish perspective. The only time that God dwells with his people is in a temple or a tabernacle, right? And the presence of God dwells in like a holy of holies, uh, and the people can, can commune with God, but they kind of come to, the, to these, uh, there's, there's barriers. They can't enter into the holy of holies, right? And so they come into the temple, they worship God through barriers, and then they send priests in a little closer, to say, good luck, guys, right? And then they do sacrifices to God, and then one guy, the, the, the high priest, they're just like... Ugh. Good luck, right? <laughs> and then he offers uh, this, this sacrifice in the holy of holies, right? Uh, and and what was uh, what was expected is that if if something went wrong, uh, that high priest might die in the event. He might claim his life. The presence of God, in, in unveiled to sinful people, it, it claims us. We even see the prophet Isaiah when he's standing in the throne room. What does he say when he sees the glory of God? He says, "I'm undone. I'm reduced." To my element parts, I'm decreated before His presence, and, and so there, there's there's something about the presence of God dwelling among us that's that's actually terrifying. But there's something inside of us that just we want it so bad. And and so this this idea of God dwelling among us is is it's confusing, right? We want it, but we can't have it. And so when, when we think about God dwelling among us, uh, it came in, in ways that we, we obviously weren't expecting, and that's great news, right? Because if it came in the way that we would expect, uh, it would come in a way that, in the same way that light uh, kind of disperses darkness. God's presence would just eliminate all of the brokenness, including you and me, right? And so, but he, he steps in in a very specific way that doesn't do that. He dwells with his people in a way that's meaningful uh, and a way that's helpful for us. And so that's what we're going to be exploring today in, uh, in Luke 2, is how Christ actually dwelt or how God dwelled among us in the person of Jesus Christ. So uh, I'm going to read this passage, and then we're going to pray. And then we're just going to go back through the passage and kind of uh, dig in a little bit deeper. So Luke 2, 1 through 14 says, now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Canerius uh, was governor of Syria. And all the people were on their way to register for the census, each to his own city. Now Joseph also went up from Galilee to the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was betrothed to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In that same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the field, keeping watch over their flock at night. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood near them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And so the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is the Christ, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, and you will find the baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly army of angels praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among people with whom he is pleased. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear God, I just, um, I just thank you for, um, well, even just the little things, uh, just, just another opportunity for us to get together and, uh, just look at your word, and, uh, and I just pray for, um, for the safety that you've given us uh, even while we do this, that we have the privilege to, uh, to meet openly and, uh, and to talk about you and, and to read your word and meditate on it. We just thank you for that privilege, and um, we just ask that you, you just keep us focused on uh, on the, the authority that, uh, that the Scripture does have and that we never leave that and we never forsake it. Even if we don't have the privilege to meet openly, that we, uh, we still stay dedicated to your word and to your Christ. We just thank you, uh, most importantly, for your Son. and Just giving us uh, that, uh, uh, the opportunity to actually see a vis- visible manifestation of you among us. And, uh, and just thank you for the, uh, the salvation that was offered through your son. We thank you, and, and again, just, just keep us focused on your word, and, uh, and just open our minds to, uh, to what you have for us today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so uh, we're just going to take, take the first three verses and just focus on that for a little bit, uh, and I'll read that again for you. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Cornerius was, was the governor of Syria, and all the people were on their way to register for the census, each to his own city. So I uh, just want to take a moment and, uh, and talk about this census because this is often missed because it's viewed as just kind of like, a uh, just carries the plot along, right? How do how do Moses or how do uh, how do uh, Joseph and Mary get to Bethlehem? And so there's a census, right? Um, but uh, this this event is actually uh, a, a bit catastrophic uh, in the in the Jewish mind. Um, and uh, from the Jewish perspective, uh, a census is uh, actually uh, a, a smidge blasphemous. So, uh, actually going back to the Old Testament, uh, we actually see the only time that God actually uh, commands a census be taken was he commands Moses to take a census, to count the people, right? But even that's with a caveat. He says, as you're counting, make sure you get an offering or a tithe or some kind of sacrifice from the people to atone for the counting. Like even Moses, when he was commanded to to do the census, God told them to do the census, but even that was, there still had to be atonement for the counting. And, and, and so, essentially, what the, what the perspective is, is that God, he, he carved out a people out of the inhabitants of the earth. He carved out a people, and he said, this is my portion, these are my people, this is mine, right? And, and, and so, this people, the only people that can, uh, that nobody can, can count these people, because this one's mine, and all you other people, you can count and you can, you can assess and survey what you have, what you own. This is what I own. Nobody counts these people. A census is, is essentially asserting authority over a group of people, and nobody asserts authority over my people because I have authority over them. And that's what's being communicated in this. And we even see this validated uh, in 2 Samuel uh, when David tries to do a census. And if you don't know the story, uh, David, he's surveying his kingdom. Uh, He's pretty proud of himself. He's expanded the borders. Uh, He has a lot of people. And so he tells the the general of his army, go take a census. Let's count how many people we have. Let's see how big we are. Let's see how powerful we are. And in David's mind, this is, is, is essentially what he's doing, is he's asserting his authority. He said, let's see what I own. And so he counts the people, he gives a census. And immediately after he's grieved, because he realizes what he's done. And he, he knew what he was doing. And so he, he confesses to God, and God basically says, okay, you have three options. Uh, you have three years of, of famine, uh, or um, three days of plague, or three months of war. And so that's, that's David's punishment. So he has to choose which punishment he wants. Right? And, and so again, what this is communicating is David asserts authority over the people of God. And nobody does that, but Caesar Augustus does. And so Caesar, he asks uh, to survey all of his people, right, and all the people that he owns. And the Jews were saying, no, 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 we belong to God. And Caesar says, no, you belong to me. I own you. And so he wants to count the people. And what's happening historically kind of behind the, uh, uh, in, the in the background is uh, is there was actually eventually a group uh, known as the Zealots. This was a a group of rebels, uh, Jewish rebels, and uh, even one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot. He was Simon the Zealot. That's that's what they called him. And it was a group of rebels. Uh, There were a lot of different groups, but there was kind of an umbrella term uh, for them, and they were called the Zealots. And, And they actually formed because of this census. So this census was decreed, and the Jews, they said that's enough, too far. And in a long series of blasphemous events, uh, they actually do rebel against Rome with, uh, with some, uh, some efficiency, uh, but Rome just comes back and kind of squishes them. But what's happening in the background is the Jewish people, they see this as blasphemy, they see this as persecution, they see this as Caesar actually asserting his authority over them, and they view this, the, the, the founder of the Zealots, we actually have his writings, and he actually viewed this census as a precursor to slavery. And he was arguing that if Caesar does this, he's going to know exactly who he owns so that he can enslave us. This is a reversal of Exodus. This is us going back to Egypt. And so in, in, in this time, uh, there's this great persecution, there's this census going on, there's this blasphemy going on, and then we see the birth of Christ, we see Emmanuel, we see God dwelling with us. And again, what we expect is, awesome, it's happening, he's going to overthrow Rome, right, he's going to stop the persecution, this is, this is it, this is what we're waiting for. But what, is, what actually happens in the story? Joseph capitulates, yeah, he goes, to, he goes to Bethlehem to be counted. He kind of caves, doesn't he? And we, we, we don't expect that. That doesn't fit in our story. We're expecting a rebellion. We're expecting the people to fight back. We're expecting them to resist the persecution. But that's not how God comes. Actually, what happens is Joseph goes to Bethlehem and God chooses to dwell among us in the persecution. And that's our first point. And that The Savior comes in, some, in, in very strange ways and the way he chose to come is he came in our persecution not to stop it. And again, this, this, this gets very uncomfortable because we expect our Savior to save us from the things that oppresses us. But what happens is the Messiah actually comes to save us from the greatest thing that oppresses us and that's our sin. So Christ steps into our persecution and he lives in it with us. He lived in it with them. And and, and this this isn't something that's just kind of fleeting. Uh, Christ comes and he feels our pain, right? He feels our pain. He feels our strife. He feels our persecution. He feels everything that we feel. So when God chose to dwell among us, he didn't just dissipate everything that was wrong. He didn't just blow it off into the wind. He didn't just make it go away like light in a dark room. But he chose to live in it. He dwelled in the persecution. So when God chose to dwell with us, he chose to dwell in the persecution. So moving on, I want to look at the, uh, the next portion, and, uh, and that's Luke 2, 4 through 7. It says, Now Joseph also went up from Galilee to the city of Nazareth, or from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was betrothed to him and was pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, I don't know if anyone had, uh, had, has ever considered this, um, but uh, why, why couldn't Joseph just stay with some family members, Right? Um, the way the census worked is that uh, everyone had to go back to the place that they were born. So Joseph was actually born in Bethlehem, and then he kind of uh, migrated uh, up to Nazareth, or down. It depends on the geography. So, uh, they, yeah, they viewed Nazareth as down because it was kind of at a lower, um, it was lower in the, in the mountain range. So uh, Joseph actually comes back, like we talked about. He capitulates. He goes back t- to be counted in the census. And uh, and then he looks for a place in the inn, right? He can't find anywhere to stay. And uh, and I think some of that gets uh, gets lost a little bit. Uh, Bethlehem is a pretty small town, so everyone would have known who Joseph was, and also everyone would have known that like he's an heir to David's throne, right? So uh, this this actually would have been uh, somewhat uh, somewhat exciting, right? We get Joseph back, right? And uh, and so he he would have found uh, places to stay fairly easily. Uh, and I think in the Christmas mythology, we like to think that, like, you know, Mary's having contractions as they roll in, and they got to find a place really quick. Uh, it's generally nighttime. I don't know why in the story. Like, I guess I like to get a star on, on the screen or something. But we don't know. <laughs> it's not at night. We don't know when when she gave birth. She just gave birth at some point while they were there. So... Uh, But what probably more accurately what happened is they went to Jerusalem, or they went to Bethlehem, and uh, and they probably would they were able to find a place uh, pretty quick, right? Joseph would have he would have known everyone, Um, and uh, even if that weren't the case, uh, Elizabeth probably was only about three miles away. We know that Mary already went to visit uh, uh, Elizabeth in the hill country of Judea, uh, which is kind of the surrounding area of Bethlehem, so. Worst case scenario, they probably could have gone just like three miles out of town uh, and hung out with Elizabeth. So, uh, probably what mo- most accurately, what happened is David, or yeah, Joseph went into the city of David and uh, and found a place. Uh, but this this inn is uh, is a little um, it's it's hard to translate. Okay, uh, what what ends up happening is uh, is Joseph goes to places to houses to look for a place to stay. Uh, and to understand this better, I think understanding kind of Palestinian homes is going to help us. Uh, so I got some diagrams. Um, so in the, uh, in the first diagram, this is actually looking at a Palestinian home from the side. Uh, so most homes were actually built on a, on a hill, uh, which wasn't hard to come by in Palestine, right? So they would find these hills, and they would build a cube of a house on the hill. Uh, and the way that you walked into the house was on the lower level, and then you walked up some stairs uh, to the main level. And this main level is where everyone lived. This is where life uh, happened. This is where they cooked. This is where they ate. This is where they slept. The whole family is just one room home, right? So this is, uh, and this is also when, when Jesus gives that parable, he says, no one lights a lamp and then covers it. What they do is they hold the lamp and it lights up the whole house because there's only one room, right? One lamp does it. So uh, that's, that's what a Palestinian home looks like from the side. But if you look at the top, uh, we actually kind of see uh, how, this, uh, how this is structured. So when you walk in on that bottom level, uh, this is also where they kept the animals. So uh, they would bring the animals in every night to keep them safe from robbers or predatory animals or predatory people. And, uh, and so that's where the animals would stay, and they called that a stable. And then at neck level, where the rest of the house is, Uh, they would carve out these bowls in the ground, or kind of cracks in the ground, and then that's where they would put the feed. So the animals are right there at neck level, and they could eat during the night if they wanted. So, and they called those little cracks in the ground, they called those mangers. And then people would take steps up, and then they would be in the living room. And some Palestinian homes, uh, they would actually partition off the back half of the house, uh, and they would call that a guest room, or a katalima in Greek. So what would happen is strangers would come, they would ask people, hey, can we stay with you? And uh, if there was room in their catalima, they would just stay in the back room, right, or the guest room. Some Palestinian homes didn't have this, and so they would just stay on the roof because the roofs were flat. Um, so sometimes they would just stay in the, uh, the roof. Uh, sometimes the roofs were enclosed, and they called them upper rooms, uh, which that might sound familiar. But, uh, but that's what these guest rooms were, or these catalimas. And so this word in is actually in Luke, it's "catalima." And so Joseph is looking for room, but there wasn't any room in the guest rooms. And so these people brought them in and they offered Joseph the best that they had, which was a stable. So the family's living in the main room, guests are in the guest room, and the only place that's available is the stable. So still in the house, right? Still accessible to the family, but there's just there's no privacy right? You don't even get privacy from the other animals, right? So and that's, that's kind of uh, the structure of, um, of the homes that, uh, that Joseph was looking for. And so when Joseph comes in, uh, that's the home that he's presented with. And we even see this in Luke 22, uh, when Jesus tells his disciples, go into Jerusalem, find a guy carrying a jug of water, which would have been weird because the women carried water, but find a guy, okay, and follow him home, talk to the homeowner, and ask the homeowner, hey, our teacher needs a catalima to uh, feed Passover to his disciples. And so he gives them an upper room or a covered rooftop. So this is, this is the guest room or this is the catalima that, uh, that they were looking for. Also in Luke 10, Jesus gives a, a parable about a Samaritan. He finds a half-dead Jew, puts him on his donkey, rides into town, and he pays an innkeeper money to take care of this dying Jew. Right? But he doesn't go to a catalima; he goes to a pandokion, and that's a place where everyone was received. That's a place where you actually exchanged money for a room to stay, kind of like a hostel, or I guess an inn. Right? So that that's not the word that's used here. So it's not what Joseph was looking for. He wasn't looking for a hotel room. Right? He was he was looking for some kind of guest room in someone's home, probably a family member. And so the best that Bethlehem could offer them was a stable. Still in a house, but open to everybody. And that's that's the point I want to kind of drive home. That's what's important about this, and that's the next point, is that Christ chose to dwell with us in common places. Common places. There was no barriers. Again, in the Jewish mind, God's going to dwell with us, but he dwells in temples. He dwells with divisions and barriers, right? We're safe away from God's presence, but when he comes to dwell with us, when God comes to Emmanuel, where does he come? In a common place, open. He doesn't even get a partition in the catalema. He's not even on the roof where people can't look up and see. It's not like he's looking down at everyone else. In fact, he's in the lowest part of the house. In fact, he's so low that people look down on God how wild is this that God, when he chooses to dwell among us, he chose to come in a stable, open to everybody. No partitions, no barriers, completely accessible, completely common. And again, when we're looking for God to dwell with us, we're looking to God to step into our reality. We're expecting some kind of barrier, something to separate us, something to protect us, but nothing. And that's good news because he's completely accessible. Everybody sees him. In fact, so accessible is he that even the animals look down on him. Even from neck level, they're still looking down at the manger. And so when when God chooses to dwell with us, he dwells with us in common places and he also steps into that persecution. He steps into our life, he steps into our hurt and our strife and our pain and he steps into our common places, our peasant homes and into our lives. This is how God dwells with us. So moving on, we get to the shepherds and in 8 through 11, it says in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields keeping watch over their flock at night. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood near them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. And so the angel said to them, "Do not be afraid for behold I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a savior, who is Christ the Lord." So let's, uh, let's talk about shepherds for a little bit. Uh, and this, uh, this always confused me because if you ever read the Old Testament uh, or the Psalms, uh, you, you find uh, God, there's actually a lot of shepherd images when, when the psalmist is talking about God, right? You would think like, shepherds would actually be, I guess, a little bit exalted, understood, uh, but that just wasn't the case. Even David, right? So he's like the greatest king uh, in Jewish history. Um, debatability uh, with Solomon, uh, but he was, he was a good shepherd, right? He was a shepherd, so you would think the Jewish people would look up uh, to shepherds or at least sympathize with them, but that just wasn't the case. Uh, what, you have to understand the Jewish education system, so what would happen is little boys would come into the Jewish uh, education system, they would train them, uh, they would have them memorize Torah, and then the, the brightest minds, they would go on to be kind of religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, whatever, uh, they'd work in the judicial system, uh, Whatever. So this is how they got the best and brightest minds is through this education system. Uh, the rest of them, uh, they would just take on the trade of their father, right? Uh, that's what happened with Jesus. He was a carpenter. Peter, he was a fisherman. So was his dad, so on and so forth. So they would just take on the trade of their father. Uh, if you didn't have a father, maybe your father died or, um, or yeah, maybe, maybe there was some circumstance where you couldn't take on the trade of your father. Uh, if, you, if you still were particularly bright enough, you could go find a tradesman and learn his trade. Right, uh, and they would be more than happy to do that because it's free child labor. Who doesn't love child labor? So they would, they would, they would. T- I'm just kidding. Uh, so <laughs> they would, they would take these boys and they would, they would show them their trade. Right, but w- what what happens to the um, less intelligent boys? What about those guys who can't really learn a trade? Um, well, they become shepherds. So, uh, and this was uh, this was helpful for society uh, because they didn't have to deal with the ignorance or the uneducated people. Uh, and so they just said, hey, watch this flock uh, way over there and keep going, right? And they would, just, they, would, they would tell them to get out of town, go watch the sheep outside of the city, and you don't have to worry about coming back in, right? Or rather, they didn't have to worry about them coming back in. So the shepherds were, were known as the most uneducated, the most, um, uh, I guess, Uh, socially inept people of society. And even so far as they would become so dirty out there and they wouldn't come back into society, uh, there's actually rabbinic writings that actually call shepherds unclean, which means as they went back into town, they would have to tell people, I'm unclean, don't touch me, don't talk to me. So they had to walk around. If they decided to go back in, they'd have to shout, I'm unclean, just because they're a shepherd. Now, they could still come back, but they'd have to go through all these ritual washings and make sure that they're, uh, they're now clean before they enter back into society or the synagogues or especially the temple. So There's no way that they could commune with God or participate in society without jumping through these religious hoops. This is who the angels come to. Why? Out of all the people, right? Shepherds. And so the angels come to them And the glory of God shines around them. And of course they're terrified. Like, why wouldn't you be terrified? It's terrifying for normal people, but they believe that they're unclean. And now the glory of God's showing around them. That would be terrifying, right? This only means one thing, right? Judgment. But the angel's like, no, no, no. Calm down. It's cool. Don't be afraid. I have good news for you. And the good news is that a Savior has been born in Bethlehem. And the angel even says uh, that today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. For the shepherds, for the people that have been ostracized or marginalized. It's for you that the Savior came. And that's that's the next point is that Christ or God chose to dwell among us for marginalized people. So not only did he come to live in our persecution, not only come in common places where he was accept, accessible to everybody, but he also came for marginalized people. And you can you can almost hear uh, the uh, the the rebuttal of the of the shepherds. It's like, cool, we can't go see him. We're unclean, right? We can't go back into the city. We can't go back into society. We can't get to this Messiah. And the angel almost anticipates this, and that's in the, in the last section. So verse 12 through 14, he says, and this will be a sign for you. The angel says, I'll prove it. You will find the baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. This is exactly how the shepherds would have seen their own baby boys when they went home. This, this was the sign for them, is that the baby is accessible. And he's there for them. He's wrapped in clothes, just like the peasant boys, and he's laying in a manger, just like the peasant boys. They do this as babies learn to roll over. They can't roll out of the crack in the ground, so they stick them in the manger, and they don't have to worry about them, right? So this is, this is where they would keep the babies, and so they, that's where Jesus would be found, is in this manger, so uh, when the when the shepherds actually come, they uh, later on in the story uh, they leave the house, uh, rejoicing God, right, praising God for the thing that He did, because He came for marginalized people. And the angel even uh, the text even goes on to say, um, and uh, and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly army of angels praising God and saying, "Glory to God in the highest." and on earth peace among people with whom he is pleased. So when God chose to dwell with us, when God chose to Emmanuel, when he chose to come in, he chose to step into our persecution, not make it go away. Feel what we feel. He chose to come in common places where he's accessible to everybody. Everybody sees him, no barriers. And he comes to, to, to save marginalized people. And Not only does he come for marginalized people, but he comes through marginalized people. Remember, Joseph is capitulating to Roman rule. He's under Roman authority. He's marginalized. He's oppressed, just like the shepherds. Christ comes through marginalized people for marginalized people. He didn't come through them or he didn't show up just to judge them or blow them off into the wind, but he came to reconcile them. And the last part that, uh, that's often missed in, uh, in kind of our Christmas, uh, Christmas celebrations um, is this idea that, um, that Christ was born of a virgin. We talk about that all the time, but uh, often we don't explain it. Um, and so we're going to go to Romans 5 real quick. I'll just read this text to you. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin... And so death spread to all mankind because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin had not been counted against anyone when there was no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam till Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the violation committed by Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the gracious gift is not like the offense. For if the offense of one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to many. The gift is not like that which comes through uh, the one who sinned. For on the one hand, judgment arose from one offense, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many offenses, resulting in justification. For if by the offense of one, death reigned through one, much more will those who receive the abundance grace and gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. What Paul is getting at is is through Adam, all men have sinned. Adam passes on his sin nature. We all get the sin nature from dad, right? From our head, Adam. So, if you belong to Adam, you have his sin nature. If you have his sin nature, you've committed sin, and now death reigns over you, right? We're all subject to death through Adam. But Christ came not of Adam. He didn't have a father, right? So Christ came born of a virgin, and he did this to escape this sin nature that all of us are plagued by. He's born of a virgin so that he's like a second Adam. There's this other chance. If if Adam is our head and we cannot escape a sin nature, but if Christ is our head, what do we get? And that's what Paul's getting at here is it's through our head Adam we get sin, but through our head Christ, our second Adam, if Christ is our head, we get righteousness. And so when Christ comes to dwell with us, He doesn't just do it uh, to participate in our sin. He participates in our persecution, not our sin. He comes to dwell with us in common places, not so that he can judge you, but so that he can get to you. And he he comes uh, for marginalized people because who else is going to get them? The people he set in charge of those people have already rejected him. Who's going to get these shepherds? Who's going to get you and me? So when God dwells among us, this is how he chooses to come so that he can offer us salvation, so that he can be our head, so that he can be our second Adam. And Paul makes this even more clear in Colossians. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. It says, "...he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible." whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And this is exactly what the angels told the shepherds, peace, peace. Through this child that's born in Bethlehem, peace. And from the shepherd's perspective and even from my perspective, I consider my life, I consider my sin long enough and I just, it begs a question, why? Why me? Why save this? And the shepherds were saying the same thing. Why us? And this is why. Christ came to step into his creation to save and to reconcile his creation. Why? To reconcile it for himself. He wants creation. He wants to reconcile creation. And it's, it's less about having this happy life and, and whatnot. Again, Christ steps into our persecution. It's more about bringing glory to himself. He reconciles us. He saves us for himself. It's, it's almost like he, he, he can't wait to get to us, right? And so Christ steps into our world, and this is the last point. He chooses to dwell among us in order to save us. This this aspect of God dwelling with us, this aspect of Emmanuel, is 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 radical in that He, the agent of creation, the one that actually manufactured the sun, the one that, that imagined up gravity, the one that actually uh, holds everything together, uh, He was the one that, uh, just like Anda said, as He's passing through the womb, He's He's holding the part, He's holding all of creation together as He's still a baby the agent of creation so appropriately was the one that stepped into that creation to save that creation. Everything starts and ends with Christ. He created everything, he steps into everything, and he redeems everything. And this, this again, back to the, the previous sermons, uh, we need to understand that we're broken, and yet we also need to repent. Just like Paul said, the, the, the gift of grace is not like the offense. You didn't choose your parents, right? But we can choose Christ. Now, even that is is a little murky because even in our repentance, that too is an act of God, isn't it? In our natural state, we don't want anything to do with God. We don't want anything spiritual in our natural state. So even that, God needs to step into our life to draw us to Christ. Everything is wrapped up in Christ. Everything is wrapped up in Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And so, as we as we kind of consider this, as we, uh, we we just left Christmas, but we we don't stop thinking about this. We don't have to leave this behind just because Christmas is over. We dwell in this in this fact that Christ he suffered what we suffer. He's accessible in common places. He's so accessible to us. And he comes for marginalized people. How often do we hear people say, I, "God can't save me"? Yeah, he can. Well, you don't know what I've done. I don't have to. He does. And he still wants you. He still wants to get to you. He wants the marginalized people. He came for all people, but he showed himself to the marginalized. And so it's, it's in this, this aspect that we understand that God dwells with us because he wants us. He wants us for himself. He created you. He reconciled you. And he wants you to repent. And this, this is the appropriate response, just like John the Baptist when he saw the Messiah, when he recognized who he was, and when he recognized who God was, the appropriate response is repentance. Asking God, pleading God, please forgive me. Reconcile me. And as we, as we enter into this new year, uh, as we kind of go into uh, just kind of a whole new year and we forget Christmas, uh, let's never forget Emmanuel. Let's never forget that God chose to dwell with us, which that aspect is is remarkable enough. But he didn't make it terrifying for us. He didn't just judge us in that moment. He feels what we feel. He's accessible to common people. And he came for common people. And why would he do any of this? He did this to save us. Let's focus on this this year as we kind of move into 2022. Let's go ahead and pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.